0: second Timothy chapter 4 we've just recently completed our study of the i am sayings of Jesus out of the gospel of John last week we looked at the song of Moses out of Exodus 15 and today before we settle in somewhere else i want to look at these verses which we're all familiar with and as much as i want to spend the time in the first two verses of second Timothy chapter 4 which will be there just a bit, but I really want to focus a little further down in this paragraph into the third, fourth, and fifth verses. I want you to read them with me, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. And be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, we've come to your word. Lord, we recognize that you have inspired every word that we've read this morning. All scripture is indeed breathed out by you so father we hold it this morning to be truth we hold it to be that which we need we hold it to be the only source of our spiritual nourishment as applied to us by your spirit we hold it to be the only guide that we have in this life. You have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Father, we see in these verses this morning a great problem, but also a great remedy. Help us to see these things clearly. We ask it for Christ's sake and we ask it in his name. Amen. If you were to back up into the third chapter Paul begins to speak there of perilous times. And the word perilous, though we don't often use it, just means dangerous. And so Paul is saying there that dangerous times will come. And I don't think anyone in the room would deny the fact that dangerous times have come for us. These dangerous or perilous times and what he speaks of in the third verse, the time will come. Both of these refer to seasons, I think, that come and go. I think the seasons may grow longer, more pronounced as time passes, as the Lord tarries in his return, but I do think that the church in every age has experienced these times and seasons to some degree or another. They may increase in their frequency and perhaps will lead to a final season when We are ushered in as the church of God to a time of difficulty, a great difficulty in serving Him. Back in the third chapter, Paul details for us what will be the pervasive characteristics or attributes of men in these days. Let me just read that list. Just listen as I read to you these things. Men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Now the question that we need to answer, in the fifth verse here of the third chapter, Paul describes those who have a form of godliness. Is this a distinguished characteristic or is this just part of the whole of that entire description? Regardless of how you answer that question, we can say that this later group, or even if it is a characteristic of the whole, this having a form of godliness, those who have a form of godliness and deny its power, it suggests that these are the attitudes and characteristics that describe those who are closely associated with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I can say that soberly because no rank unbeliever, no hater of God is going to be too concerned with having a form of godliness. Those who are concerned with having a form of godliness are those who want to keep up some outward appearance, such as the Pharisee in the New Testament. It is those that want to look the part, play the part, but not really be a part at all, to have a form of godliness. But the power, and I take the power there to be the inner indwelling power of the Spirit being denied and the transformation that would come from the Spirit of God living inside a person producing fruit of the Spirit, Paul goes so far as to say from this type of people, turn away from them. Do not keep company with them. Interestingly, before we get involved in the fourth chapter, Paul gives us an example of what it would be like of those who have had the profession or a form of godliness but deny its power. He brings out two obscure names that are not mentioned in the Old Testament account of the Exodus. But he tells us here in the third chapter, he says, As Janus and Jambres resisted, Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Now, search for those names. You won't find them. But what you will find is that Jewish tradition names the two magicians, Pharaoh's magicians that accomplished some of the same feats as Moses, names them as Janus and Jambres. You remember when Moses came before Pharaoh and he threw his staff on the ground and the staff became a serpent. What did Janus and Jambres or these two magicians of Pharaoh, what did they do? They threw their staffs on the ground and they became serpents. But the staff of Moses ate their serpents. You might remember that. So this is what it is like to have a form of godliness. In a sense, they could do the same thing that Moses, the man of God, did. But there were limits and there were degrees to which they could go. There were certain things that they could not do. Their worldly wisdom and the power of the world would only carry them so far. When the time was made for a distinction, a clear-cut distinction was made between the true man of God, Moses, and these imposters, those who had the form but no real power, the distinction was clearly made. And I think it's important that we understand that Paul, throughout this epistle, if you were to go back and read, and again, this is a personal letter written from the apostle to his son in the faith, Timothy. If you were to go back and to read this in its entirety as a whole, it's not hard at all to pick up on what may very well be its theme. Now, obviously, he's wanting to encourage Timothy. He's wanting him to to persevere in the faith, and even as as a leader in the faith, as a pastor of the church of Ephesus. But there is a comparison that's being made, very much like what we read out of Proverbs 10. The distinction is that sharp and it's that clear. Paul writes in the fifth verse of chapter 1 of Timothy's genuine faith. Every word of God being inspired, the word genuine there is important. Unfeigned faith unhypocritical faith, sincere, real faith as compared to a false faith, as compared to the form of godliness but having no power. He also uses the word impostors in the 13th verse of the third chapter. That list that I read for you that is definitive of men in the last days, embedded in that, Paul says that there would be impostors. Those who are deceiving, the word literally means enchanters, a magician of sorts. What does a magician do? He tricks you. He fools you. He makes you think that there is reality, but in truth, there is none. He shows you what appears to be substance, but in the end proves to be vanity. That's what an imposter is. And Paul says one of the characteristics of those who have a form of godliness but deny its power is that they are imposters. They make you think that they are something that they are not. And it's all about an outward form. That's important because throughout the New Testament, whether it's the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's in the Acts of the Apostles, as Luke is recording for us the early history of the church, whether it's Paul's epistles, whether it's Peter or James or John, whomever is writing, we are warned of those who are closely associated with the church and not yet through a genuine, real, living, vibrant faith in Christ, with the risen Christ, we're warned of such who are playing the part, who are impostors, who lack genuine and sincere faith, who have the form of godliness but no power. I think it's these of whom the Apostle John writes, they were not of us. They went out from us proving that they were never really of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so all of this serves as an introduction down into the fourth chapter, verse 3, because I really want to talk about who they are and why their ears tingle or itch and why they do what they do. All of this is, is given to us in the context of a time. For the time will come. Let me first talk to you about The certainty of the time. Notice Paul does not mince words. He does not paint a picture for Timothy that is all flowery and and rosy. He tells him very plainly, very openly, preparing him for such a time. He says the time will come. And again, the word time here lends itself to be a a season or an opportunity. One person has said, it's that to which the passing of hours lends itself. Just as the clock ticks and we progress again throughout a day and another day, which turns into a week and a month and a year, this season that Paul is speaking of here, There is a particular season when it is very pointed, when it is very real, when it is easily recognized for what it is. Perhaps we're living in one of those type seasons even now. I think we are. What we skipped over, getting down to the third verse, verses 1 and 2, are preparatory for this time. Since this time is certain, what do we do in those seasons that are leading up to it, or perhaps the season of revival that puts this particular season to an end? What are we to do to offset it, to push it out further and further away? Well, Paul says very solemnly in verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul ushers Timothy into the presence of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before these, Timothy carries out his, his responsibility as a pastor, as a teacher in the church. And notice that Paul says, he will judge, who will judge the living and the dead or the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. What do you do in preparation for a time like we are about to consider? You preach the word. You do so in season and out of season. Much has been written on those, on that phrase. You do so when you as a preacher or as a believer are all inspired to do so and you do so when you're not. You do so when those who are sitting in front of you have their ears eager to hear and you do so when it's apparent that they don't. You do so when... You are prepared, and you do so when you feel like you were unprepared. There's, there's any number of ways to describe what this in-season and out-of-season may be, but the convincing, rebuking, exhorting with all long-suffering and teaching is to be done in preparation for such a time as this. This time that Paul talks about that is certain to come and in which we now live. But not only is the time certain, I want you to see the tragedy of the time. Now Paul talks in these verses. He continues to refer to they. For the time will come when they will not endure. According to their own desires. Because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves. He keeps talking about these people. And we need to ask a very serious, sober-minded question. Who are these people? That's what I tried to do in, in these words of introduction, tell you and remind us of this New Testament principle that there will be those in the visible church who sit in the meetings of the church, who sing the songs of the church, who partake of the ordinances of the church, which at the conclusion of this service will have opportunity. They have the outward form. There's no substance. You know, that's a warning for the people of God on two counts. Number one, the true people of God know beforehand, and in preparation of this, that we must preach the word to all, But also we're told beforehand not to be taken off guard or surprised when we find that there are such in our midst. I'm sure if you've been a Christian long, you have been completely and utterly heartbroken over someone who was turned away from the faith and walked away. I know men who used to be fellow pastors, men that I looked up to, men that I would call, men that I would would greatly value what they had to say, who now are living a completely, totally different life. We know that there will be such. Jesus told us plainly, the New Testament instructs us plainly, the second way that this warns the people of God is we ask the question and we beg of God, let this not be true of me. The only thing that will keep this from being true of you is your attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Once that transaction, once that imputed righteousness has come to you based upon your belief and trust in Christ, then the scripture teaches that that salvation, that righteousness can never be lost. Thank God for it. If we could lose it, we would. But we can't. I can say that with all certainty because the scripture tells us that we did nothing to merit that salvation. It is a gift of the free grace of God. And so when we're looking at the tragedy of this time that will surely come, I want you to notice This great exchange. Oftentimes when we're talking about the truth of God being exchanged for the lie, we'll turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll read those verses. I've done that recently from this pulpit. And as you read through Romans chapter 1, you can't help but see the tragic exchange. To the extent that at a certain point in time, God gives over a people to go after that, which is perverted, which has been perverted. But Paul says very much the same thing, though in different words here in the third, fourth, and fifth verses of 2 Timothy 4. He says, the time will come when they, we've tried to distinguish who they are, will not endure sound doctrine. The word endure here, I don't want to be too flippant in my description of it, but I, I want to, it means to persevere in something, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say, if we understand it rightly, that they will not put up with sound doctrine. They just don't want to hear it. The next word we need to talk about and define well is the word sound. This is the word in the Greek where we get our English word hygiene. Now, when I go to a doctor or to a dentist, I appreciate good hygienic practices, don't you? I mean, we, we would be appalled if if we went to a dentist and I can say this. I have two of my best friends are dentists. So I can say this. If we went to a dentist and they didn't clean their instruments or totally use different instruments than the previous patient, we wouldn't like that at all. This is the word, sound, hygienic, wholesome, healthy. This is what they in this Passage. This is what those who are turning away from Christ, this is what they will not endure. Wholesome or healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, is that which feeds and sustains your soul. And you can make an equation here, and it's, it's a good equation to make. Just as we need healthy and wholesome physical nutrition... I don't think anyone in the room would deny that. We have to eat physically to live. You can't get around it. If you don't eat, give it enough time, your body will cease to function. Why we stop short of carrying that illustration over into the spiritual life, I don't know, but we do. It's just as true, it's just as necessary that we eat figuratively wholesome, healthy, sound, spiritual food. Our Father in heaven knows that, and He has provided a feast for us in His Word. What you hold in your hand, what you read when you read the Scriptures is to be equated with in the Exodus after the children of Israel came out. And they're complaining now against the Lord. You might remember the Lord sent a wind and in that wind was meat, was quail. And every morning there would be manna that fell from heaven and all they had to do was go out and pick it up and gather the quail. Well... The Lord has given you and I such a spiritual feast in his word. We neglect it at our own peril. We don't study it at our own peril. But notice, they have no appetite for the scriptures. But they have a great appetite for something else. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, that which is healthy, but according to their own desires. This is not the spiritual appetite of a believer. This is the worldly, carnal, fleshly appetite. They want that notice which accords To this desire. Something that will not cross this desire. Something that will not bring conviction for having these desires. Something that will not disturb the conscience. You realize the conscience is one of the greatest gifts that God has given you. He has made us and wired us such that this thing called conscience You know what it's like to have a guilty, convicted, defiled conscience. And Lord willing, we know what it's like to live with a pure, undefiled conscience before the Lord. But here in this verse, it is according to their own desires. Because... They have itching or tingling ears. Let me read you a quote from Patrick Fairbairn. He says of these ears, they are those which are always pricking with an uneasy desire for what would gratify the taste of carnal, self-willed hearts. That which would gratify the taste of carnal, self willed hearts. Here's the remedy for an itching ear they heap up for themselves teachers. The words heap up are multiply. And how the false teachers have multiplied. But I want you to notice who's responsible for their multiplication. It's those who beg to hear them. Those who will hear them at any cost. Especially in our day. It's easy to find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. It's easy to find someone that will even open the scriptures and tell you that which accords to your carnal, self-willed heart. A false teacher, though he bears the responsibility for his actions before God, or she does before God, they are empowered, so to speak, By the ones who heap them up. By the ones who must hear what they have to say. With the multiplication of teachers, false teachers come the multiplication of heresies and falsehood and error. In which the world in which we live, both American culture and worldwide, is completely carried away by falsehood and error. But if we continue on in this verse, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears. Notice what an important part in this the ear plays. They will turn their ears away from the truth. But it's not just as if they're turning away from something and not having something else fill the void. Because something else is filling the void. And Paul tells us what it is. They will be turned aside to fables. And I call this the tragedy of the times for this reason. That which is given and intended for the good and maturity of the soul wholesome, sound doctrine, that which fits and prepares us to dwell with Christ through sanctification is traded for a fable. Let's talk about the word fable for a moment. It's a man-made story or a man-made narrative, but I like this definition far better It's an invention of falsehood. An invention of falsehood and error. So you see the tragedy of the time, right? You see the great exchange that is taking place. There is available, wholesome, sound, healthy doctrine that will profit you at every turn. The question that needs to be asked of everyone in the room, myself included, is will we hear it? I realize there is a a miraculous work of a sovereign God who opens the ear. Psalm 40 talks about the ears being dug out. My ears you have opened. That's a necessary work of a sovereign and holy God. But don't for a moment think that you do not bear some responsibility before God for your own actions. As do I. When we read this verse in this way and when we give concentration to it, we see what lunacy this is, right? To have the Word of God traded for a fable. But the fable is what the masses want to hear. Why? Because Paul tells us it accords to their carnal, self-willed heart. Is it any wonder... While the scripture in bearing witness to itself in Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And you know if you've been a student of scripture for long that there are moments when the spirit of God will absolutely slay you by what you read. Conviction will be heaped up on your head like coals of fire. But thankfully, along with that comes the way of escape. The way of escape is renewed trust, faith, repentance, and forgiveness that is to be found in Christ alone. So we've seen the certainty of the time, the tragedy of the time. What do you do in such a time? <laughs> that, that's the question, right? We don't doubt the certainty. We don't doubt that the time is tragic. But what we need to know is what do we do? What do believers in the Lord Jesus Christ do in such a time? Now, I realize that this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. I realize from the beginning to the end, this is nothing more than a letter from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. But I also realize it's included in the scriptures. God has preserved it for us, and therefore it is for our spiritual benefit, and we can reap principles from this, which is what we're going to do here In verse 5, what do you do in such a time? Obviously, we continue verses 1 and 2 to preach the word, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. But I want you to notice verse 5. And I want you to see at the very beginning of the verse the stark contrast. This is what we don't often notice, or perhaps it's because we're not willing to notice it. Paul talks about them, who they are, what they do because of their itching ear and their desires to go after things fleshly but in verse 5 it's as if he were standing in front of Timothy I can see him in my mind's eye. Look Timothy straight in the eye and point at him with both fingers and say but you. This is what you do. This is what you do in such a time. You be watchful in all things. Be alert. Being alert as a Christian is very important. Because it's the spiritually slumbering and the spiritually lazy that get let off in the spiritual error. Those that will not compare what they hear to the Scriptures, and we we call that being Berean, right out of Acts chapter 17. Those who do not compare what they hear with the Scriptures to see if these things really are so or not are the very ones who may find themselves in the category of they and them in this paragraph. But Paul says to Timothy, you be watchful, be alert. In all things, endure afflictions. What do you do in a time like this when it seems like everyone hates Christ, everyone hates the Word of God? What do you do? You endure affliction. Persevere in it. Paul doesn't say to Timothy, run to the highest mountain and wait. Remove yourself from trouble as far as you can. Paul really says, engage it, endure, be salt and be light in a world that is perverse and dark. Then he says, thirdly, do the work of an evangelist. He has described in chapters 3, And four, hitting the nail on the head of the culture in which we live. And I'm not saying that we are the ultimate fulfillment of what Paul is describing in chapters three and four. Cultures such as ours have existed before and they have fallen. They have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and given enough time, if this culture falls, if it's the will of God for for this culture to completely go away, given enough time, if another one rises, it too will be subject to, To falling? What do you do in such a time? The work of an evangelist. You realize that the very ones who are described back up in the third chapter, those. Of whom I read earlier, those who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, and the like. You realize that those characteristics were definitive characteristics of me and you at one point. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says as much. He gives another list. And he says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. But... You've been washed. You've been redeemed. Your sins have been atoned for. They have been covered. So you do the work of an evangelist. Let me just say clearly, never in my lifetime perhaps, at least here where I live, never has there been a more opportune time to be evangelistic. I realize every time is is a day of evangelism, but in this context, of which Paul is speaking, in this time, we've never been given a greater opportunity. What are we going to do with it? We know that we have to endure affliction so we can't go stick our head in the sand somewhere. We cannot just decry the darkness, curse the darkness. That's easy to do. Anyone can do that. What is difficult and what must be proceeded with, with dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, directed by His Word, at every point and every turn, is engaging a culture or an individual with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. And lastly, he says, fulfill your ministry. Again, Paul to Timothy, I understand that, but there is a general sense in which every Christian has a ministry. The word here in original is just service or servant. Fulfill your service. In each one of these, Paul is telling Timothy, engage. Don't tuck tail and run. That's the tendency of every person. We tend towards self-preservation. We are self-preservationists to a fault. But since the time is certain and the tragedy is there, what we're instructed to do until the Lord returns and we can leave His return in His all-wise hands, the timing of it. We engage what He has put us in. And we proceed in faith knowing that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very power of God unto what? Salvation for everyone that believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. Let me conclude by reminding you of something that you already know. There is no person outside the scope of God's ability to save if He so chooses. The self-righteous Pharisee like Paul Blinded on the road to Damascus. One of the interesting characters in Scripture to me is, is part of the, the band of disciples. Simon the Zealot. He was politically involved. He was one who decried at every point Roman intervention. And he hated A tax collector. But guess who was part of this inner band of disciples with him? A man named Matthew who was a tax collector. And yet the Lord brought these. As diametrically opposed as you could be in real life, these two men brought into the band and became brothers in Christ, served together, radical conversion for both of them, Both of them believed the gospel of Christ and were forever changed. Examples like that abound in Scripture. The Gadarene demoniac, I think, is is an illustration of how transforming the gospel can be. It's It's a picture of a man who is as helpless as he can be. I understand it's physical. It's a spiritual illustration. And Jesus met him, and he was forever different. Fulfill your ministry. Engage the darkness around you, and do so in a way that honors Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll observe the supper. Father in heaven, we're thankful, Lord, for your word. Oh, how we need it. Lord, let us not be numbered with that number mentioned here, categorized as they who have itching ears, who desire to hear that which accords to their own carnality. Lord, let us aspire to more noble things, Father, I pray that you would help us. I realize we fail often. Father, would you encourage us anew? Help us to live in these days for the glory and honor of Christ who has saved us. Call to our minds and remembrances again that we have borne no scorn like he We have borne no abuse like he in our place. We have borne no rejection like he did. No stripes like he did. So we're here this morning as we partake of communion to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. To glory in that place where you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. Spirit of God, we pray that you would, as being the spirit of truth, take these things that concern Christ and declare them unto us. Give us ears that hear and spiritual eyes that see. Do that for us which we cannot do for ourselves. Awaken us the life in Christ. Cause us to run after his statutes, his ordinances. And help us, Lord, to spiritually benefit and prosper from this time of communion. We ask it for Christ's sake, and in his name, Amen.